0: Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Schigel, managing partner of Refinery Ventures. Today, we will be talking with Jason Warner, CTO of GitHub. Jason is gonna share with us his decision to move his family from the West Coast to Ohio after GitHub was acquired by Microsoft. He'll also share with us his experience as a leader in a hyper-growth company, requiring constant communication with his employees. And as we look to the future, Jason is going to share with us how every company needs to think of themselves as a tech company and that every 10 years, the leading incumbents will be challenged by tech-enabled startups. Come to the Midwest, invest in the Midwest. That is the ultimate contrarian move for Jason Warner. All right, well, super excited to have Jason Warner on Fast Frontiers today. And in his role at GitHub as CTO, Jason oversees the, the office of CTO, it, whose mission is to explore the unknown and non-existent aspects of technology and software in order to build a map of GitHub's future, which if that doesn't sound like a frontier, I don't know what, what does. Before that, Jason was uh, Senior Vice President of Technology at Heroku, and went to Rensselaer Polytech and Penn State, both in computer science degrees, and grew up in Connecticut. Thats right and recently moved to New Albany, Ohio, which otherwise known as Columbus Ohio and so as we think about frontiers and frontiersmen and pioneers in technology, tell us why you moved to the next frontier of New Albany.
1: All right, so this is a little bit of a convoluted story, but I will go into it uh, so the GitHub acquisition had just happened. we spent five years previous to um, being in Columbus and Victoria, British Columbia. And as the acquisition was was happening, we moved over to Bellevue, Washington. Just to be stateside, all the complexities of a transaction of that nature were taken away from having lived in multiple countries as an American citizen living in Canada, the things were gonna get complex. But we also found ourselves with opportunity. GitHub is a fully distributed organization. I have never lived in San Francisco. I've lived all around the world and in the country, but now I had the opportunity to live wherever I wanted as long as I can make it back to the West Coast. And so we started looking, we looked everywhere. We looked in Utah, we looked in California, we looked in Oregon, Austin, and Tennessee, You know, upstate New York or Chicago, or all those places. And I thought we were going to go to Tennessee. I thought we were gonna be just outside of Nashville, it seemed like a decent place. And the more I researched it, the more often Columbus and specifically New Albany, Ohio popped up on the best places to live in the country lists and so I started to have to to take that seriously and the way I characterize what I found when I when I dug deep into Columbus specifically was if you're a tech person you wanted to leave the West Coast and you had no imagination or aspirations other than to go to a place that was kind of turnkey ready for you go to Austin basically feels like Silicon Valley Midwest or Mideast wherever you want to call that If you had some imagination you wanted to build a little bit and you're okay with less structure Go to Tennessee. But if you're a builder and you really, really wanted to build and you were were okay with some some ambiguity about what was about to happen, Columbus felt like Silicon Valley 30, 40 years ago, where it was the land of opportunity. And I don't know how best to describe it other than when I've been here for under a year now and I have been embraced by the community, but you see the opportunity.
0: I love that. As a as a fast frontier pioneer, and there are people who survive well in structure. Right? And then there's others who survive in complexity and chaos, but they bring structure, right? They create structure where there was none, and and so I love that builder analogy. And you have a young family too, so that was an that was an important component, right?
1: It was. So we've got a 12, a nine, and a six-year-old. So we were obviously looking for a place where we could raise them as well, and so take that into consideration. And we had quickly ruled out very city-like landscapes, and we weren't going to move to New York City or anything like that. This had a right mix of cosmopolitan and urban and and suburban, but the other side of it, truthfully too, is your dollar goes a long way out here. It's not, I don't want to say it's cheaper, but it's just me, if you're used to East or West coast, real estate numbers or fixations and those things, it, they're, they're different worlds, entirely different worlds.
0: Right. And is there an office in Columbus?
1: Forget how? No, we have no office here. Although there are, I believe, last count, there were something like 35 different GitHubers who live in Columbus, believe it or not.
0: Hmm. A
1: lot of old, mid, and uh, early acquisition uh, folks had come out of the Midwest, and a lot of folks from GitHub were from Ohio originally. The, one of the original co-founders was born just outside of Cincinnati. Um, and one of the original investors, uh, Jim Getz from Sequoia, spent a lot of time um, just outside of Cincinnati so there's this weird connection to Ohio with GitHub but no Yeah
0: that's I bring GitHub up as an example uh, that there's great talent here uh, great ideas that uh, just need the right support system yeah, you mentioned the co-founder Chris you know being from Cincinnati going to UC yeah and then Jim Getz, who went to U- University of Cincinnati and also I found out went to the same high school I did Strongsville High School up in Cleveland Yep. So it's crazy. So yeah, obviously uh, we're breeding good stock uh, here. Well, look, look
1: at Root. Look at Root Insurance. Alex Tim is from Ohio. Imagine that 20 years ago, he would have had to go west to start Root. if mm-hmm. he didn't have to now. And imagine what's going to happen in the next 10 to 15 years.
0: So how have you found the community in terms of helping you settle in and get connected?
1: Uh, incredibly welcoming. It's weird to to say this, so Silicon Valley is very—I mean, it, it's Silicon Valley. There's no place like it. Still, it can be warm, but it can also be cold. It can be inviting, but it can also be lonely. Columbus is different, and you know, you're welcome with open arms because I think everyone recognizes that if you chose to come here in this moment in time, you're coming for a reason, and they want you to be successful because if you are,
0: they are. That's a great point. I'm thankful that you're here and you're able to share a lot of your experiences i i just hope that you don't that you have enough pieces to share you're gonna get worn out but everybody wanting to uh, get your input and involvement so good luck with that um Thanks. me included yes one of the things one of the frontiers uh that you you navigated was you know the hyper growth of github right so can you take us through a little bit you know what was the profile of github when you joined and And what does it look like now? What are some of the takeaways and lessons you've learned?
1: Sure. So GitHub, when I joined, was roughly about 700 people or so. And today we're roughly around 22, 2,300. So that was about a three-year period from when I joined to where we are now, though we had a very large transaction in the middle of that, which accelerated a lot of those things. When we were acquired by Microsoft, I want to say we were right around 1,000 people. So since we were acquired about two years ago, um, we've grown quite quickly, um, taking over a lot of internal divisions from Microsoft or products that we will eventually uh, emerge out through GitHub. But even at the size and scale and scope of seven hundred to a thousand, you start to see a lot of things. You know, hypergrowth is hypergrowth. We talk about it all the time in Silicon Valley, but growing companies are, need to be cared for. And one of the things I saw when I joined GitHub was it actually hadn't been tended to for a little while, which is I think a very well-known under, uh, statement about GitHub that it hadn't really really software in, in some time. So, you know, classic patterns emerged and we just had to manage it. And managing hypergrowth and managing growth in general, but hypergrowth specifically, is about a couple of things. Understanding why you even exist in the world. What's your mission and vision? Who are you serving? Why are you serving them? Why, do you, why would someone give you money? Why would someone come and use your product for whatever reason? Then being able to, to, to translate that into something actionable for everyone inside the company. Making it so that when an engineer wakes up every day, they know what they're working on and why they're working on it. That's a. It's easy to say, it's harder to do, but that's the essence of what hypergrowth is all about. Taking a long-term mission and vision and mapping it back to what an engineer or a marketer or a salesperson is going to do every day, and knowing why to do that.
0: that how much? How much of your time would you think you spent just on communicating that? And making sure that people understood that as you were growing.
1: So GitHub was uniquely, uh, maybe a unique place in that regard where I spent the predominance of my first six months talking about long range as well as what we're doing next. So I had to map back and I tried to only stay in those two ranges, which was long term, we're going to do this, but here's what we need to do now to hyper-focus people to be executing. And then I'd slowly expand out what we're doing now to be past this week to this month, past this month to this quarter. And slowly give the roadmap and a you know midterm vision, to the point that when we were acquired, um, we had an 18 month roadmap out there. Though I would say that I you have to you have to constantly communicate. I would write blog posts every week. I would do all hands um, every two weeks. I would do Q and A's with teams every month. I would do skip levels and then a group and department settings where I'd be answering the same sets of questions. Can't assume that if I send an email out to the company, that is it's set and forget at that point. You have to, you have to do it seven, eight, nine, ten times.
0: Well, and that's that may be surprising to some folks who think of product roadmaps and wanting to have it all mapped out over twelve or eighteen months.
1: I, I think that most people assume, and I did too early in my career, that if someone of a certain title or level sends an email out, that's it. That's the direction everyone understands it and they can synthesize it. But it, it doesn't work that way. You have to constantly communicate something, I, a term I started to adopt, and I don't know where I, I learned it, but someone a long time ago said, you have to say things seven times to be heard once. And you have to say those things seven times. So you're talking about 49 different communication channels, essentially, of I want to say a thing, we're going to go and synthesize it. And I learned early too, that people don't consume information the same way. Some people want to read it. Some people want to hear it. Some people want to have a dialogue with you and back and forth. And that doesn't scale. You can't scale a single person to 2,200 people and do all that sort of stuff. But early on, I had to do all that work at Yahoo. I had to do every single one of those. So I did it. And that was a constant job. Now you, we've got more structure in place. We we allow others to have that conversation in, in the right mode. But early on, I had to do almost all of it. I, it
0: reminds me of a situation I had uh, with a... Uh a CEO that I was kind of helping and coaching who was going through this with some major growth. And, you know, here's a person who was very smart obviously and was in the details historically, but now had a bigger organization and was doing this repeating that you're talking about and was getting kind of frustrated and, and probably bored, right? Cause they're, they wanted to go into solving big problems, but they found they spent a lot of their time just communicating the same thing over and over to make sure it was sticking. And I said, just, well, Sorry, like I'm not gonna. Give, I can't relieve you. Like you know, you have to do that.
1: That's definitely the hard work, and it's frustrating. I don't know if you anyone can relate to this to a degree, but you would hope that there's this weird moment when you're like, you have that that moment of clarity. It just it just maps. You're like, okay, I can see the market, I can see the landscape, I can see what the competitors are going to do, I can see what we should do. I should get out there. And then you have to translate what's in your, your head and your vision just to, to paper. But then when you do, you assume that all that context that you have is easy to be consumed because of the format that you put it in. But you almost have to have step-by-step conversations with people. And then you have to have an, a conversation that looks like a Rubik's Cube. You're now spinning it to have a different conversation and spinning it again to have another conversation. I... I can't imagine what it's like to run a 150,000 person organization and try to do that. But I know what it's like to run a several thousand person organization doing that. and I can understand.
0: Yeah. What skills did you learn in that, you know, with having a largely remote remote workforce? And what could you share for people today that are going through this for the first time who are saying, oh, yeah, we may be a remote workforce forever. And they ask me all the time, kind of, what can I do? What do we need to understand? And I think companies like GitHub, where you've been through it, are going to be well prepared for it. But what is... What does it mean?
1: So I think that the, a couple of takeaways I have from all of this, but also um, COVID and being remote, and I've been remote now for 10 years. I've never actually lived in the place that I've worked. So there's another additional piece of data for this, is that you do need to communicate, but you need to communicate more frequently than you assume you do. So if you think, hey, we're gonna set the quarterly objectives and then we'll review at the end of the quarter, that is a too long a time horizon. You should be doing a monthly or bi-weekly. And you should be sending out communication on some sort of a regular basis. But if you're the CEO of an organization, a CTO, and they don't hear from you, but once a quarter, that's not frequent enough. And, you, and the other thing I learned is you have to write it down. You have to write it down, then you have to use, then you have to go on video, and you have to do it on video, and you have to post it somewhere. Then you got to do a follow-up, Q&A session. And then finally, I learned that you never do it in Slack. or something Oh, really? Same. You Why have to do it, in, I, I do it in something what I call uh, institutional memory. It has to persist and Slack by nature or, or any sort of ephemeral communication tool by nature is only supposed to be a window of time and it's, then it's supposed to scroll away from you. Right. So you have to do it in a place where people can go back and have a singular URL to and they can reference it. And they can pin it to a doc or they can share it or they can just keep it up on a regular basis. And Slack by nature is not supposed to be that. And yes, I know each message in Slack has a URL, but it's not meant to be institutional memory. When I think of this type of communication, it needs to live in institutional memory.
0: What did you use?
1: We obviously use GitHub for all this, um, but then we also had an internal blog post, uh, our blog system, where we would post notes and messages and then with videos embedded. And I would use the two of those things together. I would keep persistent issues running and I would link to the blog post and I'd use the blog posts to send to people and say, this is, this is the thing.
0: Well, video is the other interesting one, right? How often or how many managers were using video? I could see that being very effective.
1: Video is very effective for two different things. One is obviously a one-to-many style communication. You're going to do an all hands. You're going to record it. You're going to post it on something. You're going to have a mini Q&A inside of that. Two, it also brings a lot more emotion and re- a reality to the person speaking it. Even you know, emails or written communication, you can get some manner of tone from the person, but the video, you really feel there's a person behind it. So that that helps. But video is a really good one for doing uh, engagement with folks. And it really helps because you can see the human there.
0: Yeah, that's great. I can see a lot more people going out and buying cameras and microphones. Back to the other lessons from, from Hypergrowth. Uh, what else did you see?
1: Well, a couple of things that were, were clear too is if you don't get your mission vision laid down early, it doesn't – one, it becomes obviously much harder to do as the organization grows. So do the work early. The other is it's never done. You have to constantly do it. It's like curating a garden. So just because you, set, you planted the seeds doesn't mean you can actually pull the crop at the, end of the, at the end of the season. You have to till it and you have to mend it tend it and uh, things of that nature. Other things I I found is that it's all about the people. It's always about the people. Because by nature of growth, you're going to work through other people. So their ability to understand it, their ability to drive it and direct it and keep it going, those are the people who who really matter. And so hiring is critically important. Retention is critically important, but also make sure that the right people in the right seat. So that goes by nature of that statement, it also goes to sometimes you have to let people go. And both of those things are equally true. You have to have the right people in the company to
0: execute. And that's one of those aspects of growth and hypergrowth. growth. Uh, it dawned on me years ago that many of the people that were in my organization had never worked in an organization that had this much the, the kind of growth we were having. Yeah. And that growth can be unsettling and scary, and your job may be changing or pieces of your job may be getting taken away from you. And so, so how yeah how do you manage people through that?
1: This one is interesting. So so I am an I'm a distributed systems engineer by trade. That's what I did when I was programming, and I am one of those people that wants my life organized or my my company to be organized. And it is unsettling when you wake up every day thinking how bad you are at your job because something is broken. But there's this, I, I heard this a long time ago from somebody that said startups are always on fire. It's just whether or not it's a three alarm burn the house down fire or if it's uh, something in the fireplace keeping your feet warm. Mm -hmm. But they're always on fire. And that helped me become a little bit more settled than that. The degree, though, to which your ability to handle uncertainty is basically going to determine your degree to be successful in startups. Because no matter what you have thought you're going to do, that will change. No one planned for a global pandemic this year to drastically affect all plans. So you have to be able to react and adapt. And um, the other thing I think about, I, I thought about on a daily basis when I was waking up with people um, and, and going to work every day was recruiting. I recruited relentlessly. Um, it was a constant job. And I used my network to recruit and I used recruiters to recruit. And you're just trying to change the notion of in, in the market of what you're doing and, and how attractive you are to potential candidates. And in GitHub's case, I had to change the notion of what GitHub was have had a historically toxic environment. Um, if you looked at from 2014 to probably 20 early 2017, it was not known as a good place to work. So you had to do the work to change it, but then you had to do the work to get the word out that you were changing it. And it was true. And that was hard.
0: What were some of the challenges with hiring people in a remote workforce?
1: Well, the good news about hiring people in a remote workforce is that you can always go find people who are wonderful, excellent all over the country. And they're usually pretty happy to work at a place with a brand like GitHub with a product as well received and used from Columbus or Minneapolis or upstate New York or Australia, even. It's just not that often that those opportunities come around for them. However, it's, you know, there's the number of those people and how you find them is always different. Because you could literally call up any recruiter in San Francisco and say, I need 10 engineers out of Dropbox tomorrow, and they can go find those engineers out of Dropbox or Stripe. But doing it in remote, you have to, it's a little bit more intentional. The other thing that is universal between distributed organizations or co-located organizations is hiring good, competent people. Because the the, the, the truth of the, of the industry is, is that most people will the average at the job. It's the nature of numbers. And you do not want to hire average people. You want to hire above average. Everyone says that, that they want to hire an A-team only. Well, how do you do that? How, how do you find those people? And obviously it's contextual to you but that is actually one of the bigger challenges that all organizations are going to have is how do they keep their 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 talent um, pool that they're bringing into the organization as high as possible over time
0: how do you view the opportunities opportunities and challenges for hiring in the midwest like now that you're here and and if you're in a company or you're talking to an entrepreneur who's in a company in ohio trying to compete with companies in silicon valley what, what should they be thinking about?
1: So one, I would say that if if you're if you're co- if you're headquartered in Columbus or someplace in the Midwest and you're only looking in your backyard, you're you, you have handcuffed yourself. Too you should you should be thinking distributed by nature right away. And I said two, I would say that have understand your flexibilities, understand where you can bend and where you can't. The other is talent uh, in the Midwest is very very high though you're fighting a little bit of history right now in talent distribution. So as an example, I'm in my mid-40s at this point, and anyone in my category in Columbus right now likely had a Java at Nationwide at some point, or JPMC. And they are likely had spent a good portion of their time using Java technology that is literally no startup is using anymore. So if that person ha- has not been a flexible thinker and has not kept their skills up and is not interested in keeping that up, you're not fishing out of the right pond to go find out of JPMc or Nationwide or whatever to hire them at your startup in Columbus at the moment. So you've got to find those people. And they're likely in university or two or three years out, but then they're they don't have the experience needed to to scale distribute a distributed system or the backend. So you've got to you've got to figure out what you're doing and how you do it. So the other thing is, I would say, surround yourself with some people who have done it before.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, there, and there there also is an opportunity to kind of have a hybrid, right? You you might have some specialists that that are in San Francisco,
1: right? 100%. You can have them distributed all over the the country and you can have some specialists and you could hire an off. You could either have an office or hire some people out of San Francisco. In fact, Root Insurance is doing this. They have a small San Francisco office and it's basically like a dummy office, as far as I understand it. No one really goes there, but it's at least a talent magnet pool where they can go hire a person or two out of that. And I'm not to say you can't actually find, Talent here either. In fact, like my one of my college roommates, believe it or not, lives in Columbus, Ohio. We got reconnected as I moved here, and he was at JP, um, JPMc, and now he runs uh, a good portion of infrastructure for Root Insurance. So my age, my background, and you know, he he kept his skills up. He really pushed himself. He was also one of the smarter people I've ever met in my university days. So he was unlikely to let his skills atrophy, and he was always going to have that inquisitive mind. And now he's over there running. You can find those people, but it's, you have to understand what you're looking for, is what I'm really saying.
0: So you've now plugged in with a few different companies, joining a couple boards. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and, you know, what you're seeing, you know, your observations so far a few months in?
1: Uh, Yeah. Uh, So I would say that the, Types of things that people are working on um, out here in Columbus specifically, I can't say generally for the Midwest because I I have a certain purview, but let's say Columbus. There's a mix of what you might consider to be San Francisco style high tech and a little bit more Great Lakes ish um, up and coming still. So there's a lot more health tech here than there ever will be in San Francisco, it feels like. So any VC out there that's tried to invest in biopharma, health tech or any of that, you basically, if you're not in Ohio right now, you're not doing your job this is the place to be however is there a stripe that's emerging or a github that's emerging out of here well not quite i don't see that yet i don't see high tech dev tools type of stuff infrastructure stuff emerging out of here the sole exception i think at the moment is actually one i think is one of your portfolio companies actually astronomer out of cincinnati is in fact one of those and i'm i'm trying i'm hoping that astronomer can become the first of many in ohio
0: yeah it's amazing and they're using that hybrid model right they uh, uh we have a veteran in the industry they're commercializing apache airflow which has become very popular for data orchestration their vp of engineering is in and, and a, a number of engineering staff and the founders of it are back in san francisco they have a london office yep. uh, but the headquarters here in cincinnati and there's definitely an advantage there right because unlike silicon valley you mentioned earlier you know hey go hire me 10 people out of dropbox That doesn't happen. Their their, their people aren't getting poached in Cincinnati, right? So they can build a a much more stable workforce.
1: It definitely can do that for sure. And I'm I'm hoping we see more of that here. I think we need to see more infrastructure tech or dev tech emerge out of here because that's when you become a high tech hub. Mm -hmm. When when you're making all the social apps, you're not a high tech hub. When you're making all of the marketing tech apps, you're not a high tech hub. Those are interesting applications, but that's not the nature of high tech. High tech San Francisco Silicon Valley was making the silicone, it was making the developer tools and the infrastructure, and that was really the predominant definition. And it happened that everything else emerged around that. But if you weren't making the the chips and the computers, that is what defined Silicon Valley in the early right. days. The modern yes. version of that is Dev Tech, infrastructure tech, and all of those things.
0: Exactly, that's where I was just going to go in terms of the 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 frontier of tech infrastructure. You know, astronomers part of a a broader movement, I guess, towards infrastructure as code. Well, and it seems like, and this is a theme of this podcast, is right. Every every next yeah. gen is faster than the gen generation before it.
1: Yeah, I I have this. I don't. This is an unproven statement, but I have a general rule. when I look at things is ten year arcs, and I believe that you know any dominant company in a space usually has somebody who will come and try to eat that space from them every ten years. But a good example of this would be that I you know I think that our major communication platforms have always turned over. You know, Slack is now dominant with team, Microsoft Teams, but five years ago, only a few companies were using Slack and most were still using something like HipChat or Campfire or something else. Like some, And then before that, everyone was using IRC or some other something or other. Well, Slack, Slack might have some persistence, but in general, something will emerge in the next couple of years to take on Slack and all the hot companies will move to it.
0: Somebody uh, today I was talking to, mentioned uh, may have been, they, they believe three or four year acceleration in the transformation of enterprises into digital, you know, digital mm-hmm. enterprises, becoming digital enterprises fully uh, because of COVID, right? And one of our CEOs has a chart that says, you know, who's driving digital transformation, your CEO, your CTO, or COVID, right? yes COVID. So it's, we're seeing that, right? People are, have one, have the time, they're, 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 they're remote, they're investing in that infrastructure now,
1: we're, you and I are both old enough to have lived through a whole bunch of different things that have happened over the last couple of Unfortunately,
0: years. Unfortunately. Yeah.
1: Unfortunately. But I, I graduated college in the first dot-com crash, then 9-11, then 2007 and eight, and you know, now, now this. One thing I would say, I don't remember where I heard this, but it was, I think it was good, which was back in the dot-com crash, new economy was propped up by old economy. Like When, when all the dot-com crash happened, basically the rest of the industry just stayed steady and it was kind of moving. This year it's in burst. If you look at the stock market right now, it feels divorced yeah. from Main Street because high tech is propping everything up. That's high tech, point. new economy, has kept everything going and everything that was not high tech is decimated. And that is not a trend, that is a change. We are we're we are we a new economy exclusively at this point going forward. An old economy has to adapt. Any anyone who is not a high tech company right now, you are in the long tails of obsolescence or because of COVID, the short tail obsolescence and if you're not you, you, you're on multiple quarters until you're out at this point
0: yeah
1: and yeah. you know i i think about that a lot because if you're a pharmaceutical company if you're an old school insurance company if you're any of those types of companies how long do you actually have to turn it around and um you know this is where silicon valley san francisco seattle and new york with some of the um it's fintech stuff is really uh going to be able to weather that but a lot of the old school won't be able to so it's also that also means there's opportunity so a place like columbus or ohio or the midwest or the great lakes could reinvent itself literally in the next five years which will feel like overnight
0: and, and that also underscores why it's so important to have more pure tech companies uh here as well so that you're cultivating that talent and that capability I,
1: I think the only way to have become a tech hub these days is to go pure tech. I don't think you can go hybrid tech anymore. Uh, manufacturing is a very specific thing, though. I think you should be investing in. I think we know what's going to happen over the next five years with what's happening politically on manufacturing. And you know you can invest in manufacturing, bio and pharma and things of that nature. But if you're trying to do some sort of old school hybrid tech, no, you'd be infrastructure tech in general is a really good place for you to be.
0: So how does that relate to... I mean, uh, the cloud, right? So enterprises are hybrid cloud, cloud, edge computing. We have a portfolio company that um, works in healthcare and they're like the first all mobile, all cloud solution. And it's not until just now, just recently, that hospital systems are willing to even accept that.
1: Well, imagine three years ago, two years ago, 18 months ago, six months ago, well, maybe six months ago, it would, would have been a good time. But if you were a telemedicine telehealth company, Uh, Before 2020, people might say, Ah, too early. Now, right now, it's too late. (laughs) Everyone has to go to telemedicine at this point. But this goes to like insurance companies or you know those types of companies. If again, if you're the CIO or CTO or CEO at those organizations, you're literally not stopping things from happening that are leading you down the old path and investing only in the new you're probably not doing your job right. The, the old term fiduciary responsibility, you're not doing the fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders.
0: What about open AI and, and AI generally, machine learning and AI in terms of how it's being applied and how that is going to impact how we think about, you know, the jobs in the next 10 years?
1: I'm not one of those people that think the robots are coming for our jobs. Um, I am one of those people that think that the robots will augment our jobs. But I do think that we have moved to an information economy in that regard. So I do think that the United States will see a manufacturing resurgence in the next 10 years, 20 years. And that will be great, but it'll be augmented by robots because you're not going to go back to the old way of doing things. So I find it ironic and not to get political on a, a technology podcast, but you can't be talking about coal in a solar world. And that is effectively what you'd be doing if you brought manufacturing back without robots. So you need to figure out what that looks like. And, and if you're adapting to the world and you're um, an employee or someone who wants to be employed in that new world, you have to adapt as well. So a good example would be open AI. Do I ever think that we're going to get to the world where machines are coding for us? Uh, probably not in my lifetime. Same thing with self-driving cars. I just don't think we're gonna to get to full autonomous self-driving cars in my lifetime. Um, well, let's call it the next 50 years. I do think that we will have augmented elements of driving or computing or programming in our, in our lifetime, for sure, we see it already. We see lane assist and all those sorts of things, but that is not full. And so if you're going after the, the holy grail of full everything, that is great aspirationally, but will never be for us in, in, in any time horizon that I will probably recognize or realize. So don't worry about being replaced. Worry, I would think more about how you augment what we do to make things better and more efficient in that regard.
0: Which, which universities stand out to you here in the in the Midwest or the Great Lakes uh, that are doing a great job?
1: Well, I know this is an audio podcast, but behind me, you've got my Penn State helmet. So I'm just going to put a shout out for Penn State. But I do think that in a lot of the Big Ten engineering schools, and particularly, and I will do it properly since I'm in Columbus, but Ohio State and then the, the school up north, which is Michigan, um, they have great programs you got northwestern another great program cmu out of pittsburgh fantastic computers fantastic computer science and um, computer engineering programs Purdue. but then you got case western and you've got um, you've got the the, the non big 10 schools like that and you've got they're all over the place in fact there there are more here in the great lakes region of good engineering schools than there are on the west coast
0: yeah it seems so like so many entrepreneurs i know that go and pull technology out of stanford and commercialize it and make a bunch of money and if you really want to be differentiated you do the same thing through the great lakes and all these schools
1: there are definitely there There are more in the great lakes than there are in the entire west coast and it, it, it you know BCs talk about being contrarian a lot. you want to be contrarian you get away from the west coast and you come here in fact right. That's one of the, the things I thought best about Mark Kwame and Chris Olson over at Drive is they're ex sequoia guys on the West Coast who came here. That is the ultimate contrarian move.
0: Yeah, I agree. Great. Well, thank you very much for sharing. I think this was excellent, covered a lot of ground today. I, uh, I wish you well. I expect you know, big things to come from having you here in our community, and uh, really appreciate you sharing all that, Jason.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun.
0: Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like the show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Join us next week when we bring you my conversation with Scott Dorsey, co founder and former CEO of Exact Target and current managing partner at High Alpha.